the runner. Fly ball down the right field line. Tucker comes on. Kyle Tucker. This time they finish the job. The Houston Astros. All right, hey now. What's up? Steve Bennett here. Sportscasters Podcast. Uh, it's been a minute, and uh, it wasn't supposed to be that way. Uh, we were supposed to have Halloween on the 31st, and then I had an interview on the 1st, and then this baby was going to go up. And we had Halloween. That went off as planned. I did the interview on the first, and then before I had a chance to put the podcast up, the school called, Paula was sick, and it's kicked off what has essentially just been a miserable week uh, that did not get any better tonight. So uh, it's season 12, episode 10, uh, with everything that happened the first seven months of the year, eight months of the year, I'm still proud we're up to 10. I'm sorry it took long this long to get to this one. Uh, Joe Shannon, the author of Evolve or Die, Hard One Lessons from a Hockey Life, is on the show later. Uh, we're going to start the show with Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg, uh, the authors of a book called Macy versus Ronaldo. Messi versus Ronaldo, One Rivalry, Two Goats, and the Era That Remade the World's Game. My accent makes it very hard to pronounce Messi as Messi for some reason. I always want to say Macy. I don't know why. I'm an idiot, I guess. Uh, but a long, uh, tough week. Like I said, Paula was sick. Uh, she was home from school uh, from last Tuesday, and she just went back today, this Tuesday. So she missed Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then Monday. So plus half a Tuesday. Uh, so that was brutal. She's fine now. She's back to normal. Just, you know, one of these virus things that's going around because kids her age wore masks the first two years of school, and they don't have any immune system. And, uh, it's just the way it's going to be. So she was sick, uh, and it didn't. It, it, it prevented me from getting in here quicker. And I'm in here tonight because I owe it to these authors uh, to get these up, this podcast up. Because, um, like this Evolve or Die interview, I recorded on, you know, in October, and uh, you know, uh, the Messi versus Ronaldo one on November first. So this had to go up. Um. Like I said, the reason it didn't is because Paula was sick. Uh, Dave had some issues, which we'll talk about on the 24-inch podcast, which we're going to record later in the week. But that prevented that podcast from getting up on time. Uh, so we're, we're behind on both. My apologies. Like I said, Paula was sick. That sucks. Uh, the Saints suck. That sucks. Apparently, the Sabres suck. That sucks. Um, the election sucked. Um just nothing has been great. Uh, nothing at all. It's getting closer to the World Cup, uh, which means I'm getting closer uh, and closer to just completely crying about what happened there. So that's not making me feel any better. Congratulations, Houston Astros, Dusty Baker uh, winning the World Series. I think even the Astros' most brutal haters, which there are many, at least felt good for Dusty, right? I mean, like, that's a silver line you can take out. It's like, ah, yeah, well, at least a guy who is a good good guy in baseball circles, 
won a World Series. Good for him. The Saints are horrible. I don't have anything else to say about them. Uh, the Sabres losing two games on the road to Carolina. And Tampa Bay, but playing really well, had me really optimistic. Their loss tonight to Arizona at home does not have me feeling optimistic at them. They, they probably just stink again. Uh, what else is new? A little bit of optimism in October and then back down to earth by November and out of it by December, right? That's pretty much the way it's been the last decade. So probably no reason not to think that's what it is again. Uh, we'll see as the little weasel scumbag Jack Eichel comes to town again uh, later this week. Uh, but I wanted to get to this quickly. A um, couple stories about the... All right, here's what we'll do. We're going to finish up in a second and go to the Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg interview. Uh, this is, I was really excited about this. Um, one of the publishing houses reached out to me. Uh, Megan, I believe, uh, Megan reached out to me and said, are you interested in this book? And I'm basically interested in any book uh, where they come to me because you never know, you know, what that opportunity might be you know, down the road, what other books they might have, whatever. So I try to never, you know, turn down anything like this. Um, I think this was early October. She reached out to me. I said, absolutely. I said, I'd love to do it. And she said, okay, I'll send you a book. And they did not send me a book. Um, It got to be about a week before the interview. I still didn't have it. So I reached out and I said, you know, I don't have a book. And they sent me a PDF, which are really hard to read, but I did as much as I could. Then the book came a couple days after the interview. Um, so I never actually had the physical book, which means I read as much of it as I could, uh, but not as much as I would have liked. These guys are really fun. I really like Joshua and Jonathan. I think they're really smart dudes. I thought we had a really interesting conversation. It's the first ever soccer book in the book club. I hope to do more as my interest in soccer keeps growing and growing. Um, and I think you'll really like this interview. Uh, the second interview I'll talk about at the end of the book club uh, update, which we'll do after the first interview, and then we'll end this with one one last thing, and I have a nice story. Put a smile on my face. Hopefully, I'll put a, a smile on yours about uh, about just uh, the way the love of, of a brother um, can really uh, make your day, your week, your month. So, all right, let's take a break, and we'll come back with uh, Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg, uh, the authors of a really cool book, uh, Messi versus Ronaldo, one rivalry, two goats, and the era that remade the world's game. All right, our first guests today are writing partners who burst onto the scene with their book, The Club, How the English Premier League Became the Wildest, Richest, Most disruptive force in sports and they're back with a new book about the two goats of soccer Messi and Ronaldo and they're making their sportscasters debut today a warm welcome to Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg hey guys how you doing today hey good thank you congratulations on uh yeah publication day um it is November 1st today as we talk as we record this uh Macy versus Ronaldo is the book and uh, Jonathan Clegg and Joshua Robinson are the um, and I, Jonathan. I should ask you before: Is it did I say that right, Clegg? Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, yep. um, Jonathan Clegg and Joshua Robinson are here um, uh, to chat, and um, we're looking forward to it. So, I'll just give you a real quick background on my life as a 
as a football fan here in the United States. Um, 1986 is the first World Cup I remember watching. I was a, um, I'm a second-generation Italian-American. Um, I grew up watching the Azuri play and loving it in 1994. Uh, my great-grandmother, who was about 83 years old at the time, uh, was watching the, the final with me. She was in the room. I didn't know she could see the TV. I didn't know she liked soccer. I didn't know she was paying attention. And after Baggio missed the kick and it went over the net and I was all pissed off, I turned around and she was weeping. And I said, Grandma, what's wrong? I thought something else was wrong because, again, I didn't know. And she said, oh, I feel so bad for Italy. They love us so much. I feel so bad. Um, and then when they won in 2006, I was able to take some flowers to her grave and tell her, don't worry, they're happy now. We got it back. And I've always... Uh, watched every major tournament. I've always loved uh, the Azuri. Never knew anything about club soccer or soccer beyond that. Um, really fell out of love with sports over the pandemic a little bit. Um, got frustrated with it and the way it, I don't know, I guess take something away, you find something else to do. It's hard to go back to the other thing when it comes back. Um, Euro 2020 came in 2021 and um, I did what I always do and, and got excited for the Italy team and they had maybe one of the best months in the history of Italian soccer. And um, when it ended, I wasn't ready to walk away like I normally do. And I wanted to know more about the players. And, you know, I, I had found out how young they all were relative to the team like that won the World Cup, for example. And um, and then I found the harsh reality that these guys spread out all over the world. And uh, to follow these guys, I'd have to learn about the Premier League and La Liga and, um, you know, uh, the French League and all these different things. And um, I've learned more about soccer in the last you know, years since then, um, the ups and downs of it, of course. Um, although I learned about that in 18 too, but, um, in the last year. So I was really excited to read this book. It's the first soccer book we featured on the book club. I've been doing this for 11 years and two or three books at a time. Um, so it's exciting to do it. Uh, and I felt like the need to say all that because I want you to know where I'm coming from when I read this and, and where I, um, where I stand, and I was fascinated following Jorginho's quest for the um, for the award last year uh, to find out how much it has been dominated by um, Messi and Ronaldo relative to the rest of time. Um, just how many of the of the awards that they've won, and um, and how unprecedented that is, and how unprecedented this era has been in terms of these two superstars really dominating the world sport and as individuals sort of standing out above everyone else. And the business of that is really the crux of what this book is about. Um, I don't know, John or Joshua, who wants to start out, but do you agree with that sort of thesis that I kind of came to that this book is really a business book about how these two guys and their superstardom has changed the business of soccer and as well as the culture and the, uh, the game itself in, in the last you know decade and a half since they've uh, been players? Yeah, it's really a, a broad look, not just at their lives, you know, because plenty has been written about that. It's really about the dynamic between of their rivalry and how that sifted, you know, the, the forces that the kind of make soccer what it is today. This huge business, they changed broadcasting, they changed uh, the, you know, ownership models. They even, in many ways, provoked uh, the the rise of the of the Super League because the clubs like Real Madrid and Barcelona, spent a decade uh, paying crazy wages to these guys. So all of that 
um, was kind of ushered in by the the Messi Ronaldo era, and you know, no era has has seen soccer change as much. Probably, you know, certainly in the last hundred years. You have anything else to add on that? No, I, I yeah, just I just yeah, I think that um, yeah, I think you're right. You know, this is this is a look at uh, Messi Ronaldo and and how they've change the game it's 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 about uh, the business of soccer but it's sort of broader than just the business of soccer too they've changed the way the game is played on the field right the culture the way yeah yeah they've changed the culture yeah. like pop culture culture around sports they've changed um the way the teams are funded managed the way teams spend money the way the way um you know how much uh, companies are willing to pay to broadcast soccer they've sort of um you know they've changed everything about soccer every sort of single um, piece of the game, every sort of small corner of that world has been transformed by the, you know, the fact that there were these two stars, um, like you say, who sort of dominated soccer in a way that had never happened before, an unprecedented era um, in which the two individual players dominated football for so long has um, had never happened before. You know, you had Pele, you had Maradona, but you never had two at the same time in the world's biggest sport. And, um, and yeah, everything about the game was transformed by them. Yeah, I feel I owe them a debt of gratitude that since the Euros, I've been able to watch literally every single uh, Azuri game that's been. You know, not just World Cup qualifying games, but um, Nations League games, uh, you know, the Classico or whatever they call it, Argentina, Italy, every single game has been available. You know, I can watch the the five big, I don't know if we got to change it to six with the way the Portugal teams have... Um, competed in the champions league this year but i can watch games from all those leagues on streaming services you know paramount does a great job i feel like in the past if i would have tried to done this say after the world cup in 2006 wasn't wouldn't have been available to me the way it was the the access to the games of course streaming services and the rise of that has helped as well but how much do you put this on the way the interest in these guys and the way that they've transformed soccer has led to its availability and access that i have to it in america now I don't know if Josh, you want to take that one? Well, what was amazing about them, or John? It's yeah, fine. What was, you know. uh, what was amazing about them is that they, um, you know, they also met, arrived at a time when uh, broadcast rights were being sold in a completely different way. But also the rise of social media, and also on top of all of that, piggybacked on an existing rivalry that was over a century old uh, at that point, and. Messi versus Ronaldo became also Real Madrid versus Barcelona. So that dramatically expanded their reach around the world. And, um, you know, each, each one of those classicos became like a Super Bowl in its own right. So you had to watch it, and, and people were clamoring for access to these games. And certainly I think uh, that was a big driving force in, in, you know, ESPN eventually getting the right to La Liga, even though by the time they got them, both players were gone. Yeah, and I think back yeah, to that. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, love to hear more. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, I think, you know, like you say, when you look back to 2006 to now, the kind of availability of soccer, um, you know, all at all levels um, is, like, vastly different, right? Like you say, you can pretty much, in the U.S., you can pretty much turn on the TV and tune into any, um, you know, high-level professional soccer game in the world, whether it's World Cup, um, Euro, um, you know, the, the Premier League, La Liga, Bundesliga, you know, all those things are way more available than they were now. And that's in part due to, you know, soccer's growing popularity uh, over that time. But but soccer's growing popularity over that time 
also owes something to Messi and Ronaldo because what they did, which is sort of you know what what separates what their era from from any time before is they played more often than any stars in the past and they scored more often than any stars of the past. So you know Maradona would play maybe sort of forty games in a season. Um, Messi and Ronaldo were playing like sixty, sometimes sixty-five games in a season. Oh my god! And they would I know. Score at these insane, yeah. prodigious rates of like more than a goal a game. Sometimes they were scoring seventy goals in a season. You know, when we were kids growing up watching the Premier League, um, the the leading goal scorer would get maybe twenty-five, thirty goals a season. That was considered like the peak that a, a player could get, like thirty goals in a season. These guys blew that out of the water. They were scoring like sixty, seventy goals every season. People around the world knew that if you tuned in to watch Messi and Ronaldo, the chances are you're going to see them play and they're going to see them score, which which sort of really elevated soccer um, as a as a as an entertainment and viewing product. Like the, the reason that we're able to see so much soccer on TV nowadays is largely down to the fact that people wanted to tune in to watch these guys set and break records every week. Yeah, and I know that Argentina and Portugal have always been world powers in soccer. I mean, you know, Argentina winning the the 86 World Cup, and then, you know, Portugal, I, I know as someone who was a novice fan, but was passionate, I always knew Portugal was going to be a tough match if, if Italy drew them or whoever did, and obviously they end up winning the the Euro uh, the last time with Ronaldo, but I, I think about, I'm a hockey guy, and I think about countries like, let's say the Czech Republic, and the, the, I'm in Buffalo, the Buffalo Sabres have Dominic Kasich, he dominates, all of a sudden the game grows in in the Czech Republic, and, and I think about how I just mentioned in Champions League, whether it's three teams from the Portugal League this year are going on. I know Ronaldo hasn't played in it since like 2003, and I know that um, I don't think, to my knowledge, Messi ever has. But um, can we look at these guys and their careers and say that it's led to um, eras of unprecedented um, p- power in the countries because of their influence? Have they changed the way, uh, admittedly knowing that they were already soccer powers to begin with, but has their rise led to an increase in, in the business and, and the power of their leagues and their players and things like that over the decade and a half or two? Oh, for sure. There's, there's no question about that. Um, I think it's important to remember that really into the 2000s, La Liga was kind of a business backwater. Um, you know, while the Premier League set the tone with the, its formation in 1992, really getting into the business of selling television rights full-time um, the and on a larger scale than ever before. Uh, La Liga was far behind that. And because of the way the clubs were set up, um, they, they were not, effectively not in business with each other. It was only once Cristiano and, and Lionel Messi arrived that they realized Hang on, we have to. We have a responsibility while the, while our clubs are among the most popular in the world to develop the league as a whole, and that became a, a really central tension between the leadership of the league and the two super clubs. Because even when even when everyone uh, thought, "Hey, the league is taking off," Barcelona and Real Madrid still didn't understand that it was in everyone's interest to share the spoils with everyone. Right, and we're and maybe we're seeing the effects of that this year, right? With it's the first time since 1998, I think only one team from La Liga is moving on in Champions. You think that that's related to yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's probably related to that, and also to the fact that Messi and Ronaldo don't play there any longer, right? Because uh, <laughs> you know, when they when they were there, that was like a golden ticket to the semifinals at least every season. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, the other thing I, I think is worth you know noting is that I think um, for a long time, um, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, became soccer fans like you did by following the World Cup because that was the pinnacle of the game and the World Cup was the sort of biggest, most important competition and every player's goal was to win that. And I think that, that one of the other sort of ways that Messi and Ronaldo transformed the game is that during their era, the Champions League became what the World Cup once was. The Champions League is pretty much now widely regarded as the best tournament, the most prestigious one to win, the one that players um, care about. And a lot of that was to do with the success that Messi and Ronaldo had in that competition year after year after year. Neither of them have ever won the World Cup, yet they've won the Champions League so often that they go down as, you know, two of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time, despite not having won a World Cup, which would have been unthinkable, you know, 20 years ago. Like, if you did not have a World Cup, there's no way you could hope to compete with your legacy would compare with Pele or Maradona, both of whom um, lifted the World Cup. But nowadays, the Champions League has become the sort of most prestigious uh, competition, and Messi and Ronaldo's like dominance of that competition. Every year, one or other was in the final for so long. That is what really, um, that is another sort of huge change that their rivalry has helped sort of um, perpetuate. Well, that's incredibly interesting to me and very, very hard for me to believe as someone who, you know, in the club versus country debate or whatever is so heavily to the countryside. But you're saying that so Buffon, let's talk about Buffon for a second. You're saying he will retire this year, next year, whatever, and be upset that he he would trade his World Cup for having won the Champions? Because I know he hasn't won Champions. It's like the one thing he hasn't done. So you're saying players now would rather win that than win the World Cup for their country? Well, I mean, you know, it's a lot of these players grew up at a time when the World Cup was, was still the pinnacle. So, you know, their personal feelings about it you know it's, it's hard to know one way or the other I, I, what i am saying is that as far as like soccer fans and and soccer followers and people involved in the sport are concerned the highest level of the game like the, the best quality of soccer the toughest tournament to win is the champions league because you know it, it stands to reason right these the world cup teams the, the national teams play together maybe six weeks in a year you know they they don't uh, practice very often they're not like super familiar with each other their tactics um are you know comparatively rudimentary well and the best teams aren't in the like, tournament right i didn't mean to cut you off but yeah the best teams are always in the champions league i mean italy is proof that the best teams don't always make the world cup because you have to allow for teams all over the world to be in it so you it, you know the fluke of the qualifying and Jorginho losing his mind and not being able to make a penalty that that has now caused you know, so, okay, so I see that part of it for sure, that the quality, from a quality aspect, the Champions League, it absolutely makes sense, will be the best, because you always get the best teams, because it's based on merit. Yeah, and and, and so and, and so what you have then is that every single year, pretty much, the guy who wins the Champions League, um, which, you know, was usually Messi or Ronaldo, would then win the Ballon d'Or, because right. in football, that is recognized as the toughest tournament to win, right? So Messi and Ronaldo shared the Ballon d'Or, for all those years in a row, despite neither of them having won the World Cup, because within football, winning the Champions League is considered the sort of ultimate accolade. 
um, versus the World Cup, right? It wasn't in 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 twenty um, you know in, in twenty fourteen in twenty eighteen the, the 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 you know the, the Ballon d'Or winner is Messi or Ronaldo, despite despite the fact that neither of them won the World Cup because they won the Champions League. Yeah, that's fascinating. Anything to add on that? No, I, I think that's really the heart of it. And, you know, Champions League teams, because they're together all season, because they're able to stockpile the best talent from, from around the world, um, and, and it's certainly what, what Barcelona versus Real Madrid became. You know, they were effectively the two centers of gravity um, for the better part of a decade. For if you were a top, top player, that's where you needed to be. You needed to be on one of those two clubs, not just for your best shot to win the Champions League, but also because you wanted to be in the orbit of Messi and Ronaldo. And that's really interesting because I think another thing I took from the book is kind of this idea that those guys didn't necessarily make the clubs they played for better off when they left them. Um, and I think about that now. What, these guys spent a decade making uh, their two prospective clubs in the Liga the place to be, everyone from all around the world. Now, your last book was about the Premier League. It seems like that might be the place now. Um so it didn't necessarily go long. It didn't last past their careers in the league, I suppose. Um, and it seemed like that was a point in the book that these guys haven't always left the uh, clubs that they've played for better off beforehand. You know, whereas I think about uh, you, you know North American sports, like something like Sidney Crosby coming to the Penguins, they're going to exist beyond his career because he came to them when they did. If he didn't there'd be no Pittsburgh Penguins. You know, it just doesn't seem like that translates as much to international soccer. Thoughts on that? Am I wrong? Because I could be wrong about anything I say. Believe me, I'm still learning. So don't be afraid to tell me I'm an idiot. No, 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 no. No, 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 no that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you got it right. You know, like, um, well, I guess the, the sort of amazing part is that um, these clubs had Messi and Ronaldo for so long. And that, sort of guaranteed them a level of success that no other clubs in the world could match, right? Like I say, honestly, no exaggeration to say that having Messi or Ronaldo was basically a golden ticket to at least the final four of the Champions League every single year, right? The Champions League brings in a ton of money. The teams that reach the final stage of the Champions League are getting like tens of millions of dollars every single season that their rivals are not able to access. So they already got this huge economic advantage from having these two stars. And yet, despite having that, despite having that economic advantage for, you know, 10, 15 years, in the case of Messi at Barcelona, by the time he left, Barcelona was mortgaged to the hilt, like had like a, a billion dollars in debt and was desperately trying to, you know, s salvage its financial future because none of the sort of strategic thinking at the club was based on the sort of long-term benefit. And it was all based on sort of maximizing the Messi window and, and winning as much as they possibly could during his short, like the short span of his career, without really any sort of regard for the long-term future of the club. Both Real Madrid and, and Barcelona could have used the Messi-Ronaldo era to kind of like guarantee a level of success like years into the future, and yet neither of them did. They both got involved in this kind of war of one-upmanship where they basically assembled teams of world all-stars which meant that they were paying so much in, in wages that there was no money left over. So they didn't build for the future at all. And when Messi and Ronaldo left those clubs, there was sort of not, there was a huge vacuum there. And, um, and, and, and that's what we're seeing right now, with Barcelona failing to progress in the Champions League 
Um, Two years in a row, right? And and missing out on that money you mentioned. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong here on this then, too, because what you described, this this arms race between the two teams, it seems like world soccer now, club soccer, is dominated by people who can afford to be in that arms race still. You know, that the teams that are at the highest levels are the PSGs and the Man Cities and whoever else that can afford to you know, add another guy, add another guy, you know, spend a billion dollars at the transfer window or whatever, that these teams seem to be, so So maybe they, did, they're, they're, they didn't leave their legacy with a specific club, but have they left a legacy that now requires these super teams to exist to get the money that is unlocked by going far in the Champions League? Well, com- completely. It's It becomes a, a kind of vicious cycle where, um, if you miss out on the Champions League, you can spiral out very quickly because you know that that blows a fifty or sixty million dollar hole in next year's budget. Um, but con- you know, conversely, in order to keep staying in the Champions League, the you have to keep spending on, on expensive players. And um, in the Messi Ronaldo eras in in Spain, what happened was they were so good for so long, and that it would have been almost irresponsible for the clubs to waste their primes. So instead of spending a cycle of three or four years um, to, to stay at the very top, they suddenly had to spend at that level for a decade um, just to keep giving Messi and Ronaldo a shot and, and to give themselves the best shot too. Um, but it, it does create a situation where your, you know, a club's annual nut to crack is so large that even missing out on the Champions League one time can become a, a huge disaster. This is all incredibly fascinating, and it's all basically um, part of the legacy of these guys. The book is called uh, Messi versus Ronaldo, One Rivalry, Two Goats, and the Era That Remade the World's Game. It's by Jonathan Clegg and Joshua Robinson, who also uh, teamed up for a book called The Club, How the English Premier League Became the Wildest, Richest, Most Disruptive Force in Sports. And by the way, I love to hate it. I'd love to root against those uh, Premier League clubs and Champions League and, and just about everything else. Um, look, at, I have a million questions. I probably shouldn't have spent as much time uh, pontificating about myself as I did, but for some reason I felt compelled to give you some background as to where I was coming from in terms of reading the book and, and, and questioning you guys. We have a few minutes left, so I'll throw a couple more out. Um, I remember watching the 60 Minutes story about Barcelona. I think it was around 2015, 16, something like that. It was the focus of how uh, part of it was about, of course, Messi and his impact. And part part of it was also about PK and his rise through the um, through the, the Junior Academy and um, how powerful that was and how that was uh, going to be able to sustain the club. And it doesn't seem like it has. And I guess it's two parts. I mean, first of all, I think just the fact that that piece exists um, – is is part of what this book is about, right? Like, I don't think 60 Minutes in the United States would have ever spent that much time on Barcelona if not for these two guys and the impact that they had on sports. And then the second part of it is, as I wonder this, and I wonder it as I read more and learn more about the development of players and, you know, there's this striker shortage in, in Italy and, you know, uh, why does this happen? And, and people smarter than me keep saying that the big clubs, you know, they don't develop the younger players as well. Um, because they don't put them out there because, like you guys said, there, there's so much riding on these championship league matches and, and getting as far in that as you can and the budgets and all those things. is is it, I, And I see that soccer is, is getting younger and younger. You know, more 18-year-olds um, scoring goals, more 
you know, Saka having to make a kick to save England in the finals. He was 19 years old or whatever. All of this is also a runoff of, of the legacy of these two guys, right? I mean, I think that that's the crux of the book, isn't it? I guess the question is that everything we see, nothing is not affected in some way by their legacies, if that clarifies it more. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that you can pretty much trace any development in modern football back to these two guys, right? Like, you know, something as sort of, you know, seemingly unrelated as, like you mentioned, with like, okay, Italy has a striker shortage. Well, wh- why is that? Well, that's partly because the way that Ronaldo and Messi play was totally unlike what we expected from strikers in the era before they were around, right? M- Messi started out, both of them started out like uh, essentially as wingers playing on, on the on the side of the field, like dribbling past guys and crossing into the box for one of the like traditional strikers to stick it in the net, right? But during their careers, they became... They, 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 the coaches who, who um, managed them, and they were managed by some of the greatest coaches and, and, and greatest mind footballers ever seen. Guys like Pep Guardiola, guys like uh, Jose Mourinho, Alex Ferguson. They came to realize that their talents could be better harnessed by putting them further up the field where they could inflict maximum damage. Right. So then they become these very different um, type of strikers than we've been used to seeing before. They're not. They don't just stick, um, you know stay in the box and wait for the cross to come in and stick it in the net. They're dribbling from, you know, 30, 40 yards out, dribbling past guys and shooting, shooting from much longer range than we're used to. They totally transformed what we expect to see in strikers. So when the whole rest of the world sees what's possible when you have one of these guys up front, the, the requirements for the striker also change. Now everyone's looking for a guy like Messi and Ronaldo who can do everything, who can <laughs> dribble and, and, and pass the ball and also score. And so then the, the, the sort of traditional Italian... You know, center forwards and Italian center forwards used to be like, there used to be one guy who was like sort of big lump and you would knock it up to him and he would head it down for the little guy to stick it in the net. Those, those sort of archetypes for what the striker looks like don't really exist anymore. So, you know, it just goes to show that every sort of development, every, where we are now in, in, in professional soccer can almost always be traced back in some way to the impact that Messi and Ronaldo have had on the game. It's absolutely fascinating. Again, the book is called Messi versus Ronaldo, One Rivalry, Two Goats in the Era That Remade the World's Game. One last thing, and I'll let you guys go because I know you have a, a busy day and it's uh, the book launches today and I'm sure you got an interview every other second. So I'll let you go after this. It's dangerous to say who's going to be the next Wayne Gretzky, who's going to be the next Michael Jordan. Those guys, they don't grow on trees. Messi, Ronaldo, there might never be a next one, right? But we talk. I've talked in, in my novice approach to knowing anything here, which, again, don't be afraid to tell me I'm a dope. But I ask you, who, when you look out, when you guys watch the landscape of soccer now, all these under 21, under 25 players playing, do you see a guy or two that has the ability to rise to this level? Do you look at a guy and say, he could be the next one that is at that level or in that, that we speak of the way that we speak of, you know, like you guys said, Pele, Maradona, um, you know, the first Ronaldo, Ronaldo, Messi. Who are those guys now? I think what's so interesting about, you know, the the years of conditioning we've had from watching Messi and Ronaldo is that now it's now not enough for us to have one guy who's clearly a genius. We have to have them two at a time because there has to be another dichotomy like that. And so um, I think the one that, that the soccer world is gravitating to right now 
as two guys who are under the age of 25 is, you know, Erling Holland at Manchester City and Kylian Mbappe at PSG, who is right. Messi's teammate. Uh-huh. Um, those are two guys who are having already prodigious careers. You know, he's already won a World Cup. Holland is absolutely exploding uh, the pace to be to uh, set a new uh, Premier League scoring record. Um, and what's so appealing, I think, and why they fit the dynamic so nicely is because they're so different. Um, Holland is just enormous and, and is a, has a game entirely based on power. Um, and whereas Mbappe is, is trickier and faster. Um, so I, I think that's where the kind of debate will come from. Um, but, you know, we're seeing players come up younger and younger and, and there could yet be more. Do you want to throw out two more? To add to Mbappe and 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 Holland, who are I guess the obvious choices. But what about a little bit of? De- I, I don't think. I, yeah. I, I don't think. I don't think there are. I don't think we've seen. Um, I don't think there are two guys on that level. Okay. Um, you know, even younger that, that we're seeing that we're seeing yet. You know, like one of the one of the things about soccer, like you say, like the kid, the kids come up young, right? They yep. start playing. Wayne Rooney started playing professionally when he was sixteen years old, right? So we tend to know about these guys from a very very young age. Rooney was known about when he was sort of 12 or 13. Uh, Michael Owen, the other, you know, great mm-hmm. goal scorer who sort of burst onto the scene as a teenager. He was known about when he was, uh, again, like 11, 12, who had broken all the Liverpool goal-scoring records. So people know about these kids early. And um, so in general, you know, we have a pretty good heads up of when these guys are coming. And um, beyond um, Haaland and Mbappe, we haven't got anyone at that level yet. But, um, but you know, yeah, it, it, it almost assuredly will come because football is becoming, you know, more like I say, more globally available, more popular around the world, and and the more people who play it, you know, the the, the greater likelihood there'll be another another star like Messi or Ronaldo come along. Yeah, it's amazing to watch. I mean, I was watching Roma yesterday, and they bring in this kid named Christian Volpato, who's eighteen, all of eighteen years old, and he scores a goal within the first five minutes and um, makes uh, Jose look like a, a genius to bring him in who. Who's a wild man? And I <laughs> look at this. This uh, I've said it a few times, but this book is fascinating. I wish I had more time. I have a million questions. Like I probably should have done a better job of keeping my own mouth shut. Uh, the book is called "One Rivalry, Two Goats," and the era that remade the world's game. It's Messi versus Ronaldo, and the authors are two great guys: um, Jonathan Clegg, who's at C L E G G J O N on Twitter, and Josh Robinson twenty three, who's at Josh Robinson twenty three on Twitter. Um, you can get the book starting now, uh, wherever you get books. Anything else you guys want to mention or plug uh, to kind of get the word out? I mentioned the I other book, The Club. Yeah. Talking, you're talking to us. Yeah. Oh, I, I abs- it's a fun chat. Thanks so much. Yeah, I love that. You guys have any questions for me? Um, no, I don't think so. I, like <laughs> okay. I say, this is, this is great. Um, I, I hope that, um, you know, I hope that... Uh, uh, like I say, I hope, I hope that, uh, you know, as you become more invested in the game and learn more about it, that the book uh, helps illuminate some of those things. Um, I think, yeah, as our first book as well, The Club, um, also t- sort of uh, explains a lot about how we got to where we are in modern soccer. Um, that That's sort of about the, the Premier League and its um, explosive growth. So I think, you know, the books are, are, are sort of pair up very well. Uh, I think if you enjoyed the first one, you'll really enjoy this one. If you enjoy this one, you can go back and check out the first one too because they really sort of together really explain pretty much anything that you would need to know about modern soccer. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly very much invested in the careers of these guys like Donnarumma and Barella and uh, Chiesa and all these guys, and I'll definitely be learning more and more every year. It's just such a bummer they don't have the World Cup a little bit more. I mean, the last one was in 2014. Now, the next one I don't think starts until, what, 2026. They should do them more often. You know what I mean? It's crazy. That's a that's a yeah. the World Cup only exists if Italy's in it. Joke, I guess you guys missed it, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, I I know you have no more right. time for my nonsense. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. All right, I want to thank Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg. Uh, their book is wonderful. Well, what I was able to read of it, and I'll try to finish it if I get a chance over Christmas. Uh, but check that book out. And I want to mention, too, I forgot to mention it before uh, the interview started, was I was clipping in that interview. My mic was hot, and I couldn't figure out why. I couldn't figure out what was wrong. Um, everything looked right ahead of time. And as I'm trying to do the interview, you know, one thing about being by myself is I'm sitting at the desk in my podcast room. I got the board next to me. I got the iPad next to me. I had two guys on the line. You know, I got their book next to me. My laptop's on the other side of the room. I got all these wires. I got levels over here, levels over there. And I'm trying to figure, why am I clipping? Why am I so loud? And I couldn't figure it out. And today, right before I started this, I looked at the board and realized the gain was turned up. And the gain is the not the knob that's closest to where Paula sits. So I'm not going to blame Paula, but you know, her intentions are obviously pure. Her heart is pure and she was trying to fix dad's microphone and she may have cranked the gain up to the maximum level. And that may have uh, interfered with the quality of that interview. And if it did, I apologize. Uh, So hopefully you guys got to hear it. Hopefully it wasn't too distracting and you stuck with it because those are cool dudes. All right. Quick book club update. There's one book right now and it's one I never thought would happen. Um, I've been having problems this fall with the publishers following through with what they're saying they're going to do. It's not the fault of the authors, especially in this case, uh, but I never believed this book would come until it did, so I'm only officially announcing it now, and the interview will probably be on the next show. Uh, But the book is called Bleeding Green, A History of the Hartford Whalers by Christopher Price. Uh, The Hartford Whalers, of course, part of the Adams Division. I grew up uh, watching their games live. Um, I grew up you know, going to the odd and seeing the Whalers, they were always here on like a Tuesday night for a cheap ticket. And that was definitely where I was going uh, based on the economics of my family going up. You know, hey, the Whalers are here for nine bucks in the oranges. You want to go? Hell yeah. Uh, so I went to many, many Hartford Whalers games, including the very last game in the odd, which they were a part of. Uh, grew up hating Pat Verbeek and Kevin Deneen, who always seemed to kill the Sabres. Uh, but I look forward to talking to Christopher Price about that book. Again, it's called A History of the Hartford Whalers bleeding green. So we'll talk to Christopher about that. I'm going too fast. Jesus. Slow down, Steve. Slow down. Take a breath. Okay. The next interview is a book called Evolve or Die by John Shannon. I read this book 
I really enjoyed reading this book. Um, this book is another book that did not come on time. It it came, I guess, eventually. <laughs> um, before the interview, at least, I got to read you know, most of the book. I had reserved 30 to 45 minutes with the author. Um, I got on the line with the author, and he wanted to reschedule. He wanted me to call him at like 8.30 at night. And I said, no. And he said, well, I can give you 20 minutes now. And I said, fine. So the interview is about 1870, which would be 1910, uh, 1840 or so. Oh, man. It's been a long week, people. Um, it's, it's right in my wheelhouse. I mean, to talk about Hockey Night in Canada and hockey media and things like that, I would have loved to have done more time with John. But, you know, at some point you have to stand up for yourself and say, look, if this is what, again, this is a case where the publisher came to me. Will you feature this book? Yes, I will. Will you? I will read it, every page of it. I will prepare an interview. When do you want to do the interview? They give me the date. They give me the time. They tell me how long I have. We agree to that, and then I get on the phone with the author, and he doesn't want to do it. And, you know, this is one, too, where I think that about 10 minutes into it, he probably wished he didn't kind of blow me off in the beginning because I think he realized I had a good interview prepared, and you'll hear that. Um, I wish we could have gone longer, but it is what it is. So let's take a break. Uh, we'll come back with John Shannon, and then I'll be back on the other side of that uh, for some plugs and one last thing. Whew. All right. Our second guest today was a longtime producer of one of the greatest shows in the history of television across the world, Hockey Night in Canada. And he's making his debut on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to John Shannon. Hey, John, how are you doing today? Doing great. Good. How are you, Steven? Good. Evolve or Die Hard, One Lessons from a Hockey Life is the book. Uh, fascinating stuff. I'm a sports media nerd. You know, when I grew up, I would uh, buy the USA Today and turn it to the second page to read uh, Rudy Martsky's column before I read any, everything else because I love sports media. And growing up in Buffalo here, my whole life I had Hockey Night in Canada um, and loved watching it, and it was uh, fascinating t- to read about it. Why Why was now the time to do it? Uh, well, first of all, I did the same thing at USA Today. I loved Rudy Martsky's <laughs> yeah, column. what a column. Uh, what a guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was a fascinating read. We had a similar guy in Canada called Bill Houston. Yeah, his, I've read uh, many his, times, yeah. his column in the Globe and Mail was called Truth and Rumors, uh, but he ended up being a, a very influential uh, television critic as well, uh, comparable to what Rudy did. Uh, great thing was I got to meet Rudy uh, once before, I, and, and that was when he was he was working in the North American Soccer League in Memphis for the uh, for the Memphis Rogue Soccer Team. So I always felt a little more akin to to Marsky when he started to talk about uh, television. Anyway, to answer your original question, why now? Um, probably because I had more time. Uh, I got a, I've been approached four or five times to write a book uh, and have turned down every one. Uh, and I was now at a point in my life where I wasn't working as hard. Uh, I wasn't uh, in constant uh, disarray of balancing airtime with with other things uh my my kids are all grown up now and so i uh, i had some time so it, it also fell into that window of 
what we're going to do in the pandemic. Right. And there's a lot so, of that. Yeah. A lot of the books oh, coming yeah. out right now are in that kind of projects born out of the pandemic issue. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, in Canada, we had our lockdown on March 15th. Uh, and I started writing the book on March 17th of 2020. Makes sense. Good way to spend the time for sure. I, like I said, I grew up on Hockey Night in Canada. It was over the air here in Buffalo. We picked it up. It was Channel 5 on my set. I would yep. I would turn the dial to Channel 5 and, and get to watch more hockey because when I was a kid, I really only cared about hockey and professional wrestling. Um, and I grew up on Bob Cole and Harry Neal, and, and you write a lot about Bob Cole and the impact he had on your career. I think he's one of the best of all time to ever do it. And even as television got more sophisticated and I had more options – if I had a choice to watch anyone call a game or Bob Cole call a game, I went to Bob Cole. I think he's one of the best ever. And you wrote, you wrote a lot about him in the book. Give us a Bob Cole well, story. Well, two things. Yep. First of all, um, no one had a greater anticipation about what was going to happen uh, with his vision uh, and his theatrical voice than Bob Cole. When Bob Cole saw a player with the puck at center ice and saw only one or two defensemen back, he could tell you, watch out. And with those two simple words, he was telling you something important is going to happen. Uh, and whether that was a shot, whether that was a save, whether that was a hit, you knew there was going to be some storyline that Bob was saying, this is important to pay attention. And you did. And that's because Bob's great sense of anticipation. You know, the first time I met Bob, I was, you know, in my early 20s, and I was hired in 1978 to work on a, on a, a, a U.S., uh, sorry, a, 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 an NHL Soviet club series called Super Series 78, um, and Bob was our play-by-play -play guy and I was the associate producer. So I introduced myself and I said, I'm here to help you. What do you need? And he says, I need a can of Coke. <laughs> uh, and we, and we were staying, we were staying at the uh, Renaissance center in, in Detroit. And I must've walked up and down 30 flights of stairs trying to find a Coke machine in the whole building. And I finally found one. And, and by the time I got to his room, I was sweating profusely. And he says, where'd you go? And I told him the story and he said, Oh my goodness whatever you do when you become the boss don't tell people that you did that so i haven't told that story often but i tell it i've been telling it the last week just to remind people you know you can you can start at the bottom and work your way to the top well i'd imagine his style was a producer's dream a behind the scene guy's dream because he was so minimalistic and he wasn't his ego wasn't so big that he needed to hog the big moments he would he would say goal or scores and he'd get out of the way and let the pictures and the sounds and the arenas tell the story that had to be a dream for you in the truck. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, again, he, he, he was theatrical, Stephen. He, he understood the moment. Uh, he, you know, I mean the, the famous thing that if you were in the booth with Bob Cole and they didn't want you to speak or anybody to talk is he gave you the Heisman. Gave you the Heisman. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, he did it until he did his last game. Uh, and that was because he could feel those moments as well as anybody. He was in the bowl of the arena. He could see the players. Um, so from, from that perspective, from that perspective, 
he felt that event. He made it a big event. And that's what made him so much fun to be around and so much fun to listen to. Absolute legend, one of the best of all time. I think it was last year, Al Strachan wrote a book called Satellite Hot Stove. Or maybe it's called something different, but that's what it was about. And, and he came on the show to talk about it and discuss it. And again, as a sports media nerd and as a hockey connoisseur, and, and, and I think people forget the era then. You know, there wasn't the athletic and there wasn't all these other options to have the inside knowledge and, and, the, and the information that was given out on the satellite hot stove in the second period was invaluable to me as a sports fan. And I was so appreciative of it. And what I want to ask you is, you know, as, as someone who grew up in Buffalo, I learned how to read really young because I heard that there was words in the newspaper that came every day uh, to my house about the Sabres in it. And the guy who wrote those words most effectively was the late, great Jim Kelly, who I know is a part of that show. Can you tell me something good about my all-time favorite sports writer, Jim Kelly? Well, I viewed, uh, I viewed Jim as a dear friend for a long period of time. Uh, and I can tell you the first night that we put the satellite hot stove officially on the air in January of 1995, Jim Kelly was sitting beside Ron McLean. Jim Kelly was the guy on the first satellite hot stove. Jim Kelly was, uh, was uh, I think it was a Buffalo-Toronto game. It may not have been. I can't remember. Um, but then we had Jim Houston, who was representing Western Canada, and then John Davidson, who was living in New York. He was basically our American correspondent for the hot stove. And Jim was a big part of it. I used to love when I ran hockey night and, and either in other shows that I was in charge of, uh, Jim was always the, the president of the Professional Hockey Writers Association. So we would have Jim on the air uh, one way or the other in the last game of the Stanley Cup final. Uh, to explain the voting for the Conn Smythe. And that's how we became friends. After uh, Hockey Night and after I left Hockey Night, when I started Leafs TV, we needed other voices to come on, and I would invite Jim to come from Buffalo, drive up, and do a Sunday morning TV show with us for two hours called The Reporters. And Jim was a big part of that. And, and through that, we got to work together again on the radio in Toronto, uh, when the producer, one of the producers who was working on, on the Leafs TV show, uh, Mike Gentili, was also the producer of Bob McCown's Primetime Sports, and they needed somebody, and Jim Kelly's name came up. And so Jim and I were lucky enough to work together at three different places, at Hockey wow. Night in Canada, Amazing. and at, at Leafs TV, and at the Fan 590. Mike Harrington told me a story about how the, when he was passing away, the, the Buffalo News was working on a best saber of all time kind of countdown feature in the newspaper and they were waiting it was tied between perot and hashik and the only vote they hadn't got yet was jim kelly's and, and he was in the hospital getting some treatments or something and mike didn't want to bother him and uh, they kind of they kind of assumed based on the history between hashik and jim he'd go perot anyway and um he Kelly called Mike and said, listen, I, I got to get this to you. I, I want you to know. And it ended up being Hashik. And he was such a pro that he didn't let that, you know, clog, clog his vision at all. And, and from his deathbed, he was contributing to the, the Buffalo hockey culture and the Buffalo hockey world. And I hope he's remembered because he's one of the best ever. Thank you for that. Well, I, as I recall, he also was writing columns for Sportsnet and filed his last column for Sportsnet.ca four hours before he passed away. And, and, with the, and, and the one thing I would tell you about Jim is that Jim knew the personal aspects of the things like his disagreement with Dominic Hasek, 
but he was a journalist first. And in journalism, you're supposed to be fair. Yep. You're su- and so from that perspective, um, you know, he, he may not have liked Hashik, but he, he, he used his tremendous journalistic skills to be fair in that scenario to pick Hashik as the greatest saber of all time, as I recall. Yeah, you know, growing up here in Buffalo in the time that I did, we used to go to Canada on a Tuesday night for Chinese food. You know, there was <laughs> there was nothing unusual about that in the pre nine eleven world. It's like, yeah, hey, let's go to George's on uh, in Fort Erie. It's you know, well, you can do it again now. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It, it's getting I was better. Bu- yeah, it's I, was, getting better. I was in Buffalo yesterday, so crossing oh. the border is easy again. So. Yeah, I was in Canada and I went to Pearl Jam in September, and it wasn't too bad. And it's even easier now because Arrive Can is now optional too. So, yes, it, it is easy. But it's not like when I was a kid. I mean. The border was just a bridge, really, you know, that you'd pull up to it, a name in the uh, U.S., uh, yeah, all right, I enjoyed the Chinese, I don't know. It was a different yeah. world then. But, uh, my, again, it's just to say that uh, Canada and hockey in Canada is such a huge part of my culture, my surroundings growing up. My, my brothers and I, we played, we played many tournaments in Canada. Um, and, and like I told you, I was a huge fan of hockey night in Canada growing up. The first night of the playoffs was always one of my favorite nights. You'd get the stand-up of uh, Ron and Don Cherry at an arena somewhere, kind of just you're near the Zamboni entrance maybe, you know, and the crowd would yep. be going wild sure. and you'd hear them talking. Sure. It, it just got me so pumped for the next two months. It was such a great way uh, to set the tone. And when I was coaching hockey schools, we had like three VHS tapes and they were all, you know, Don Cherry's tapes and I love Don and I love his commentary and I'm so sorry for him how it ended and I wish it didn't and I don't want to go negative here I don't want to relive any of that I just want a really great uh, Don Cherry story you spent a whole chapter in it uh, you, you told about his gener- his unbelievable generosity helping your kids around Christmas time uh, which mm-hmm. really touched me and I, I just want a great Don Cherry story if you got one well here's here's the one thing that that I would tell you about Don is that you know there's there's the public Don that has to be you know, wearing the the fancy jackets and the high collar, the persona. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's 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 the the image of Don, but if you get past that, what you will have known about Don is that he was a very charitable person and giving to so many people. We live not far from each other. He's a you know he still lives in Mississauga, uh, and and he, he's so charitable with his time, visiting hospitals, uh, talking to people. Uh, it, it's, it is terribly disappointing the way it ended. Um, but you know, you, you, what Don Cherry contributed to people's lives for a long period of time could, should only be viewed as a positive. Were there things you disagreed with when you worked with him? Absolutely. Sure. But you could, the great thing about Don was, Stephen, you could talk them through. The discourse is say, great. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, yeah. The, 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 you know, it, it would, you know, sit down over a couple of cup of coffee in, in his backyard and talk about it and talk about his dogs because we, we have dogs and, and, and settle some arguments and settle discussions. Don was very good. Don was very open minded about things like that. I, I, would, I never had an issue in the, in the period of time that I worked with Don. Um, I never had an issue uh, with what what Don did, uh, and he was he was as even though he tried to portray himself as as this uh, uh, crotchety old man and you know you know a little Don Quixote windmill stuff, he really was a, a team player and really understood how important Hockey Night in Canada was to many people. Yeah, and how many times did Hockey Night in Canada end? 
with Don holding the picture of a Canadian soldier, a Canadian child, or someone who had gone through a hardship, and you could see his yeah. real heart emerge. And I, I just loved him and loved that segment for many, many years. The book is called Evolve or Die, Hard-Won Lessons from a Hockey Life. John Shannon is great. You get to hear about his uh, early beginnings in Western Canada, which was a great timing to be there with the Oilers dynasty and the um, you know the, the Flames winning a cup. He's in there for a great time, and then after the strike in '94, he ends up at Hockey Night in Canada. And you learn about, like I said, the the segments with Don and the satellite hot stove and uh, the Olympics and all, really great stuff in here. I really hope you, you hockey fans check it out again. Evolve or die: Hard Lessons from a Hockey Life by John Shannon. Let's get you out of here on this since you're tight for time. Uh, this you're you're a hockey producer. Uh, you, you've produced many hockey games, and you know uh, the game is, has taken a weird turn this year with the ads on the boards, and they've decided yeah. to project different ads than what's in the arena. And I think it's been a bit of a di- disaster so far. There's uh, lines on the ice get blurred out by the image. Um, the reflections are weird because you have the reflection sometimes of the ad that's actually there on the ice, but then the the other ad is there and I maybe I'm being a get off my lawn guy I want hockey the way I do I don't want ads on the jerseys I some of this stuff drives me nuts and I know the league needs to grow and all that but as a guy who produces hockey how did you think how do you think you deal with this what do you think about its effect on the game is it no big deal why get used to it what do you think about kind of the way uh and maybe more in general how television broadcasts of hockey have evolved here the last couple years and in the U.S. we have the new TV deals the two new partners uh, I'm trying to cram a lot into one question because that's all I have left. But yeah. what are your it's thoughts right. on this? Yeah, yeah. Listen, um, in the end, the technology will be brilliant. It, are, are there some hiccups? Yeah, there's some hiccups. Uh, but we had hiccups I- I- through my time over the years too. You know, there were nights in lots of arenas where the overhead cameras above the goals didn't work, and we needed them. There were times where uh, microphones didn't work and we needed them. This is just another level of technology. Uh, this, this does help grow the game business wise. You know, this is not, this is a partnership between the players and the owners and hopefully the revenue sharing will assist, uh, teams to continue to make money. So we don't have to worry about teams moving or, or, or changing. Now, I don't think that'll happen anymore because I think the business is strong enough, but you know, I think we have to embrace technology. I think that that's, that's going to come. I mean, I think for the, for a team like the Sabres to be able to sell, by the way, you can have rink boards not only, uh, in your own building, but you can have Buffalo rink boards on the road. I think that's a positive for corporate partners for the Sabres. Uh, and eventually there won't be those glitches. Um, and, you know, computers sometimes make mistakes too. Yeah, you think they'll and, work it out essentially. And, and, yeah. and oh, they'll, it'll, I, I guarantee it's be worked out in the next month. I think that they they would not they tried they've tried to introduce this for four years. Uh, they started with the World Cup of Hockey in 2016, uh, and and now we're they're at the point where they felt that they were comfortable enough it could work. I would tell you right now that it works 97 percent of the time, and what we're bitching about is three <laughs> percent. Well, fair. they're gonna that's fair. They're, we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna fix the three percent, and we're gonna go forward, and it's gonna be better for everybody involved. And, that, and, and as, as long as it doesn't disrupt my viewing continually, then it'll work. But they still have a few glitches, but it, it will happen. As far as the, you know, the network deals in the U.S., I, I think that it's, you know, exposure of the game is important. I think 
When you look at what TNT has done for the NBA, what has done for Major League Baseball, it's starting to do and put its imprint on hockey. That's a positive. And ESPN's the worldwide leader. Of course. Yeah. How, how, when I was at the league, we yearned to be on ESPN. Yeah. We, we were in withdrawal to be on ESPN, and that was the number one question. Why aren't we on ESPN? Well, the NHL's on ESPN. They have a, they have a, a product they can work with. The league is willing to help them. And I think that that's, that's going to be a positive as well, too, Stephen. Yeah, and as much as I love Bob Cole, of course, the, the U.S. has been blessed with some great league guys. Gary Thorne was great. Uh, Doc Emmerich was amazing for years. And I think that Kenny yep. Albert and Sean McDonough are both great. Uh, one more time, Evolve or Die, Hard Won Lessons from a Hockey Life by John Shannon. It's available on Amazon in the United States and all across the country in Canada. We have many listeners there. I appreciate the time. I wish we had more of it. I'm throwing out a couple pages well, of notes. Well, I, I, but, tell you what, hey, yeah. I tell you what, Stephen. Yeah. Um, pick another day. We'll do another. We'll, we can do a whole hour. If you Sounds want. good. I'll keep your number and I'll touch base when things calm Please down do. with the book. Best of luck with it. Thank you, John. Thank you. I want to thank John Shannon for being on the podcast. I also want to thank Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg for being on the podcast. Please check out their excellent books. Don't forget, you can hear this podcast and all podcasts on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. And if you can do a five-star review, I wouldn't turn it down. Check out my buddy Keithy and Peter. Greetings from Allentown Pod at GF Allentown Pod, of course, for greetings from Allentown Live. Um, and also, I want to mention, of course, the 24 inch podcast at 24 inch podcast. And the email is at 24 inch podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we have another episode which will be uh, out later this week. We're going to talk about SummerSlam 1990 from the Philadelphia Spectrum. Uh, one of my favorite shows of all time. It's one Dave picked, something he wanted to do. We wanted to do it last week. We got busy. We'll do it this week. That's okay. And then we'll have a couple more in November, hopefully maybe into December, where we talk about a Survivor Series and uh, maybe also do the uh, legendary This Tuesday in Texas pay-per-view. Um, so that's a plan there. All right. One last thing for me today, and it's a story of, uh, you know, about my brother Greg. Um He's my older, younger brother. He was born in 1986, so I'm six years older than him. Uh, he's a father of two. Uh, my nephew, Gregory Jr., who is right out of the Pearl Jam song, Do the Evolution, uh, the line where Ed says, uh, admire me, admire my home, admire my son. He's my clone. Uh, my nephew is the clone of my brother. Uh, and then he has uh, his daughter, Willow, who is the wild card of the family. Um I love being around her. She's super fun, uh, and she's absolutely nuts. Uh, it's so great. She just runs. She lives in her own world. Uh, she's super fun. I can't wait to, to see her grow up. Uh, my brother's you know, a husband. He's been married uh, one year longer than me uh, to my sister-in-law, Laura, who's um, you know, beautiful soul. I always love the time I spend with her, her addition to the family. Uh, Greg's a hard worker. Uh, he's got his day job. He makes uh, dentures. 
uh, fake teeth. He could explain it better than I do, but that's my general understanding of it. I know he's great at it. He took some time away from it because of the pandemic, and I know he's happy to be back to it and maybe move into a managerial role there. And then he also busts his ass in refs hockey games on the side, uh, and he's pretty good at that too. He's done some big games, um, including uh, the Bowman Cup, which is a big th- big deal here in Buffalo. Scotty Bowman, it's named after him. Uh, he, he did the lines for that, and he was telling me the other day he refed the game uh, all the marbles to go to states between Wheatfield and Chictawaga, packed house at Chictawaga Rec. Uh, so he does big games. He's he's a good he's a good dude, um, who I'm very very proud of. Um, and when I'm in the hospital, he's there for me. Like just calm, Greg. I need I need drinks here. Boom, he's there. He's there with the drinks. You know he's just he's super dependable. Uh, Greg, I need a ride to a uh, you know an appointment. All right. You know, he's just like that. He's just very, very, very dependable. He's got my back. I love him very much. And we were texting, I don't know, this is maybe a couple of weeks ago now. Um, like I said, this podcast is delayed. And there was other things I maybe wanted to talk about that have come up since. But I didn't want to pass this over because it's just too important uh, to me. Uh, but we were texting about a couple of interviews I had done. He was listening to. I think the, the Joe Madden one he was listening to. And I was... Just kind of texting with him about it, telling him maybe the backstory or, you know, how I thought I kind of won Joe over with a line. or just kind of going back and forth about it. And I was laying in bed. It was early on a weekend. Saturday or Sunday, Tammy and Paul were somewhere. And I wasn't, like, sleeping. I was just kind of laying in bed, you know, fucking around on my phone, you know, refreshing Twitter. Bullshit. And, and texting with him. And the texts were coming, you know, every day, 15 minutes, 10 minutes. I look at my phone, I have a text room. And the tone went from, hey, I'm talking to you about this and I'm talking to you about that, about the podcast, too. Just real serious. Like, he was, like, um, saying, like, oh, I'm so proud of you. You know, I can't believe you were so sick and, and you just, you're fight, you're fight, you're fighting so hard. And, um, you know, you you, uh, you got through it. And, and, um, and I was really appreciative of what he was saying. And I know him really well. So I know that... Um, that, okay, here, the, here, this is what he said. He said, so we're joking around, talking about Eddie Vedder and, and, and Joe Madden sharing Coronas. And then all of a sudden he says, I love you, brother. I'm proud of you. You just fight and fight. And I got tears in my eyes as I typed this. I'm so proud. And and when I when I read those, I could just, I know him so well. And we tease him for being soft. But but it's we say it in a loving way because his softness, he's got a heart of gold. And I could feel it. And then I just kind of, I, I thanked him and it kind of went on. And then my phone starts ringing it to my mom. And she says, you know, I just, I just was talking to Greg. He called me and I got on the phone and he was crying and crying. I thought something was wrong with one of the kids. And he had basically just said what he said in those texts to my mom. And he, and, and maybe even took it a bit further with her saying, you know, I could have lost my brother and. You know, I didn't, and this is all to just say, like, how touching it was for me, and how, you know, when I did the interview with Wertheim, and he said, you know, like, what, why did this, why does the podcast matter to you, or something, it's like, you know, I, I think I said something, like, I get to make the people who care about me proud, you know, and to make Greg proud on that Saturday morning, where he's probably up too early because the kids are up early and he's laying around on the couch and he puts my pot on 
So he's supporting me, you know, even though I know he likes the barstool guys better or whatever, you know, no big deal. Um, they're probably better. Uh, but, um, and he's just listening and, and it just touched him. And then he spread that to me and it touched me. And it just made me think about what matters, who matters. You know, it's like a perspective moment. Like, you know, I got my wife, I got my daughter, I got my mother, my father. You know, I have one grandmother still. I got my brothers. Does anything, does anyone else matter? You know, I have some issues with some family members about some things that have happened over the summer. And it's just like, I don't even care about them. Like, let them be them then. You know, that's how they want to treat me. That's They want to take me for granted. You know, let them do it. This is what's important. These are the people that are important to me. These are the people that matter. You know, and I think something you learn as you grow older is that the people who really matter, your circle gets smaller and smaller. You know, when we're in 20s and we're in college, we know all these people, right? And we're having all this fun with all these people. We have all these friends, friends we think we're going to have for life. And then they get married and they move here and they get a job and they, they care about this. I talked to an old friend uh, recently who I, I care about, but I never talk to him anymore. And he lives not near me, but in my city. You know, and he's around me a lot. I know, like, work meetings and stuff. We never see each other. I can't remember the last time I seen him. I think my friend Mike had a 40th birthday party, and he turned 41 this year. So it's been over a year. Um, but when we talked, you know, it was like, good to talk to him. You know, we have a nice conversation. I care for him. I want the best for him. He's a successful guy. He's got two kids on his own. You know, I'm happy for him. I'm not mad at him in any way. Look at that impression. Uh, but he's not really a part of my inner circle anymore like he was. You know, and, and that, that just got smaller and smaller. And it still gets even smaller and smaller as these like outskirt family members fall off for whatever reason. You know, and as I went through what I went through this year, you know, I just have really focused on the most important people, the most important relationships. My wife, my daughter, my brothers, my mother, my father. And all this is just to say, Wow, am I lucky, right? Wow, am I lucky that I have a younger brother, you know, who on a Saturday morning is willing to just put my shit on, my bullshit on, you know, listen to it, bullshit with me about it, make me feel happy that he heard it. And, you know, I get to brag a little bit like, yeah, I talked to the World Series manager and I made him laugh with that joke, you know, boost my ego a little bit. And then forget all that because there's even another level where he puts into focus how important his relationship is, how deep his love for me is, how important that is, how much I need that, how much I need him. Like, wow, that's big. So I guess all of that's to say, you know, if nothing else, uh, just that I love you, Greg, you know, and you deserved uh, that shout out here. You know, you deserve to be out there in the podcast and, you know, if you got a brother, a sister, um, or someone in your inner circle that's really important uh, to you, and, and maybe you've lost touch of that a little bit, and I'm not even saying that happened with Greg, it didn't, you know, but uh, just the, the ability to focus in on it a little bit and think about it and appreciate it, oof, it doesn't get much better than that. It really doesn't. So, love you, Greg. Thanks for always being there. Uh, thanks to Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg. Uh, thanks to John Shannon, even though I wish I had a little bit more time with him. Sorry this podcast took so long. 24-inch uh, podcast later in the week. 
and I still think we'll do two or three, maybe four more of these uh, before the season ends and the new year ends. Uh, so best to you wherever you are, and I will be talking to you soon. Chase Miss